Trigger warning, Death and Friends is not a podcast for the light of heart. Many dark and serious subjects will come up. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, everyone, everyone shush. I think I hear him. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Uh, wh- what's this? <coughs> look, <clears throat> uh, look, bud, we, we, we love you. We love you, and we're super worried about you, man. Come on, sit, sit down. What's this about? We know we've been real hard on you, dude, and we're sorry. We know making this show funny cannot be an easy task. <laughs> we we think, collectively, we mm-hmm. think maybe you've been working just a wee, just a little too hard, just a little too hard, maybe, you know? It's just really throwing yourself in the gigabit, you know? Just, that's all. <laughs> I, I don't understand. We're worried. Maybe you took last week, I don't know, a little too seriously. That's my job? Right, right. And maybe we've just... We've asked too much of you, that's all. Maybe we've just made you listen to too much bad shit. Are you guys serious right now? Really? Look, we we thought last week you were gonna, you know, just, just a little slight have us killed or whatever. You guys kill me every week. Not every week. We just don't want, like, a repeat of season one. Remember that season finale? If you haven't heard it, you should listen to it. Where you kind of, you know, went off the rails and tried to murder us. And then you went on that little vacation for a while. Remember? With the grippy socks, you know? Oh, you don't want to be murdered repeatedly? That's odd. Hi. Uh, no, that's not. That's not. What... J- Jen, maybe you could help us out a bit. I'm only here because you're paying me to be. Legally, I have no idea what any of you are doing since none of you appear to be murdered. Is it? Threatening to murder someone against the law? Didn't you just admit to murdering Dom nearly weekly? I, uh... Yeah. I don't think you want to get into this with me. Okay, Dom. We just want to say that we, sincerely, we are sorry. And we love you. And we hope you're okay. I'm okay. Okay, buddy. Bring it in. Bring it in. Let's all, let's all hug it out. Thank you for everything that you do. Oh, man. You guys make me so happy. I hate this fucking job. And full of love. I, I can give you a number for a different lawyer. <laughs> I love you guys. Excuse me. Hey, bro. Can I stop the murders now? All right. Here we go. Death comes for us all. You might as well make it your friend. Your friend. With us all. Welcome back, Skeleton Army. I'm Angel, and this is Klaus Hargreaves. Nope, that's not. Nope, it's uh, it's only Nash. Surprise, it's me. Great, we're so happy, dude. We're like two minutes off a group hug where you cried and you told me you loved me. Quiet, you. That was before the intro song, so it doesn't count now, and it doesn't matter. That's soul crushing, but fair. Just make the picture you actual menace. Quick reminder: we're still in the middle of some gruesome serial murdering. And yes, it gets worse from here, so buckle up or go off and daydream about what life could be like if Joe Rogan didn't also have a podcast or if kittens could fly. Oh man, that'd be, that'd be uh, pretty, pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, here we are in reality. We're at September 30th, 1888, and it's roughly 1am. We're about to get into what Jack himself calls the double event. But before we do... Let's meet some people first, just apropos of nothing. 
Elizabeth Stride was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter in Torslanda, Sweden in 1843 to a farmer and his wife. By age 16, she is a domestic worker in Sweden, but by the following year, at age 17, she is employed as a prostitute in Sweden. It's a big jump. Then in 1866, for reasons unknown, Stride makes her way to cheery old London. And in 1869... Nice. <laughs> nice. In 1869, she marries a white guy three names called John Thomas Stride, who is... Get this, 22 years older than her. Dane? They run a little coffee shop for a bit, and he does carpentry on the weekends. But in 1881, their marriage breaks down, and Elizabeth heads to the workhouse. JT, that's what we're calling him, JT dies in 1884, and Elizabeth settles in Whitechapel life. A bit of cleaning and sewing for money, and uh, just a just a touch of prostitution. <clears throat> Moving right along, Catherine Eddowes is born on the 14th of April, 1842, the sixth of 12 children. Twelve? Twelve. There's no time. In 1855, her mother dies and her father joins her in 1857. He's dead. Now orphans, Catherine and four of her siblings are forced into the workhouse. The workhouse provides children access to learning trades. And with the help of her elder sister, she gets a job as a tin plate stamper. Probably pretty boring work, and Catherine gets fired only a few months after, causing tensions with her surviving family. She moves to Birmingham and meets Thomas Conway, a lovely Irish lad who had served in the army and has a little stipend, and he spends his time selling chapbooks all across the aisles. <clears throat> Quick question. The fuck is a chapbook? It's like a... It's like a... A little, little bitty notebook with like a just a little like a collection of vignettes and some shit, you know. Interesting tales, urban legends, a little bit of smut here and there. Twilight was featured in it once. Nice. Together, Conway and Catherine write little gallows ballads about folks condemned to death by the state, which is a very lovely and uh, creepy way to make money. They have a few kids, and then by 1870s, Catherine is doing a fair bit of drinking. Thomas is a prohibitionist, though, and according to their daughter, their fights come down to violence. Catherine leaves the family for good in 1880 and heads for Whitechapel, where she meets John Kelly. They live together in Whitechapel, where she often does cleaning or sewing to earn her rent. And sometimes they travel a little bit to do some hops picking when the weather's right and mood strikes them. She occasionally visits her family. Her older sister, at least, is fairly well off and would lend her money on occasion, which is nice of them for Victorian Britain. Projecting much? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> lend me money. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Give me monies. Money, please. Monies, please. Patreon.com slash On the 29th of September, Catherine is arrested by the London police for being drunk on the sidewalk, and she's taken to the jail to sober up. Quick trigger warning here. Back to September 30th, 1888. It's 1 a.m. when the body of Elizabeth Stride is found on the corner of Commercial Street. She is laying on her back with her throat cut about two inches deep. It takes the men who find her a few moments to realize she's dead, since she's technically still warm. When the doctor arrives on the scene, he estimates she's been dead only about 20 to 30 minutes. As Elizabeth's body is being discovered, Catherine Eddowes is leaving the police station after being arrested for public drunkenness. According to witnesses... Catherine was seen in the company of a man at around 1.30 a.m. in Mitre Square. At 1.44 a.m., PC Edward Watkins is doing the rounds and turns back into the square, which he'd just left a bit before 1.30. He sees Catherine's body laying on her back, throat severely cut, just like Elizabeth, and her skirt's thrown up. Part of her ear is missing, and her face is being mutilated, and she's also, maybe, missing some internal organs. We'll get to that. He sends the alarm running to a watchman, shouting, For God's sakes, mate! Here's another woman cut to pieces! Apologies for the non-existent English accent. 
didn't happen then. They all had an American accent while we speak now. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, well, then let me let me spice it up. Yep. For God's sakes, may here's another woman cut to pieces. Thank you so much. Jesus fucking Christ. It's historically accurate. He's from East Texas now. Yes. This is a very excellent synopsis of what's happened, to, to be honest with you. There is another woman cut to pieces. Very fair. The police are absolutely baffled with how the killer managed to escape. Essentially, twice in one night. But this time... With so many officers so close, so close, doing patrols. Doing patrols. Yeah, it's so close. It's almost like just more cops isn't the answer. One police constable, Richard Pierce, actually lives at Three Mitre Square. His bedroom window is facing the crime scene. <laughs> and he hears nothing. George Morris, the watchman PC Watkins calls mate, is also on scene in the area doing whatever watchman things are. He hears all the constables rotate through the area on their rounds every 15 minutes. And guess what? Guess what he hears? Want to guess? You at home. Steve. A whole lot of nothing. Yes, nothing, nothing. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate you. It is at this point that I'm wondering if they are actually hearing nothing or, hear me out, Mm -hmm. if the police are just murdering women freely and covering for each other. Because the only other alternatives are that Jack the Ripper is a ghost of... It's just a ghost. One ghost. Just one ghost. Maybe Uno many ghosts. ghosts, actually. That could be fine. That could work. It's just a collection of ghosts. <laughs> ghost agreement is what it is. I'm J. I'm Ace. I'm C. I'm K. And we are the Rippers. Okay. Uh, They're very gay for whatever reason. Because the only other alternatives are that Jack the Ripper is a ghost, mm-hmm. or that the women are just, you know, murdering themselves. Hmm. Violently. Hmm. And then dismembering themselves... Postmortem. Huh. hmm Hence the panic that happens very, very publicly after these murders make the papers in the morning. And it's not just British papers, either. The New York Times, yes, that New York, the American variety, publishes a piece on October 1st, 1888, and they don't hold back with how much they think the police are bungling this investigation. People are terrified, and in light of the complaints of the police, we have done absolutely nothing. They confess themselves without a clue, and they devote their entire energies to preventing the press from getting at the facts. They deny the reporters a sight of the scenes or bodies, and give them no information whatsoever. The assassin is evidently mocking the police with his barbarous work. He waited until the two preceding inquests were quite finished, and then murdered two more women. He has promised to murder 20 in all, and has every prospect of uninterrupted success. Pepperidge Farm remembers. Thank you, New York Times. Unfortunately, they've made a few points here, some of them good and some of them illuminating something else that's happening. They say the police are trying very hard to keep the press from getting at the facts, which is a very true thing that the police are actually doing. Mm-hmm. Partially because the police have no leads and the witnesses are basically on the police force and they witness... Hang on, let me look back at where the script says oh yeah nothing Mm -mm. just a whole lot of nada and partially because journalists at the time had a very loose definition of facts we love a good sarcasm quote tell them daddy journalism is a business baby and business has got to make money we mentioned in part one of the story the papers were selling stories about lost women and scary crime kids in order to cash in on the spooky whitechapel stuff well as it turns out The police know this. People are saying that. The police know this. And one fun side effect of telling the public everything is that you get a lot of false leads and fake accusations. 
So after the complete and utter fail of the whole leather apron thing, remember that guy? Just butt-ass naked with a leather apron on? We totally made that up. That's not true. The police get pretty worried about telling journalists anything. So the journalists start to just kind of put any old shit they want in the papers. Because fuck them. That's why. Goodbye. Speaking of journalists, also on October 1st, the Central News Agency receives another letter from Jack. Although this time he signs it off as Saucy Jack. (laughs) Because in addition to being a ghost murderer, he's just a piece of shit. Mm. The postcard obviously comes after the murders are discovered. But in the text, Jack has some other things to say. I was not cutting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow, a double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get the ears off for police. Thanks for keeping the last letter till I got to work again. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Uh, good excuse for not slashing the shit out of Elizabeth, I, I guess. It's worth noting at this stage that the letter arrives 24 hours-ish after the murders were already discovered. So maybe Jack just slept in? He's tired now. She did so much murdering. Murdering is tiring. Well, and the graffiti, he did that too. I'm sorry, what what did he do? He just drew a bunch of dicks on the walls? What is it with history and dick on the walls? Oh, no, 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 dicks uh, that I know of. Maybe there were, I'm getting distracted. As the police are looking at both of the September 30th crime scenes, they stumble upon a bloody bit of apron that belonged to Catherine Eddowes. And above that, in white chalk, someone had written... The Jews are not the ones that will be blamed for nothing. Or maybe the Jews are not the men to be blamed for nothing. Or maybe it was the Jews... Or... Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Stop. First of all, you're saying the Jews way too much. Why, why are we not sure what it says? Oh, well, the police superintendent, Thomas Arnold, has it removed after they find it. And a few of them write it down in their handy-dandy little police notebooks. We just got a letter, we just got a letter, we just got a letter. It's from Saucy Jack. Hey! What's that, Blue? Bow, 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 bow. Just a little destruction of evidence? Bow, bow. In fairness, Arnold is worried bow, that it... Bow, 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 bow. Arnold is worried that it's going to bring about the same anti-Semitism as before. And now that they've released Leather Apron, he sort of got a point. Oh, now he's worried about anti-Semitism? Yes. Probably would have been good to make sure we got it written down, though, right? Or, like, a picture? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been ideal. Because nobody is really sure if it means Jack hates the Jews, or if he is one, or if he just thinks Jews is spelled J-U-W-E-S and he wanted to show off. Or maybe he just wanted the police to think any of those things. That's precisely what the police do think. Which one? Yes. Okay, so we got graffitis and letters and how... I don't know, man. Maybe the whole thing is fucking fake. Uh, Nash? Just a quick, quick little thing. I don't think the murders are fake. No, no, not the mur- not the murders. Of course, they're... Of course they're not f- I mean, the letters. The letters. The le- Fun facts with Nash. It's 1931, and a journalist called Fred Best is starting to feel kind of bad. His tummy hurts. He can't really sleep. He's got the gurgles. He shits his pants routinely. He admits to forging the Dear Boss and the Saucy Jack letters with a colleague, Tom Byrne, just for the hell of it. 
Now, maybe he was lying in 1931, or maybe he did forge them and completely invent a serial killer that becomes the basis for every creepy, unsolved serial killer movie. Or maybe it's Maybelline. But either way, lots of people believe that the first two letters are a hoax. But some people don't. Some people do. So... Listen, listen, mate. This is just how every single thing with Jack the Ripper goes. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe it's not either one of those two options. I just want you to know that these two episodes could have easily been a hundred episodes or zero episodes. Or like behind a paywall. Nash, is this, um, hang on, give me your hand. Hang on, I'm just gonna hold Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it. Um, is this your banana massacre? I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I can't find any evidence at all that Fred Best ever said that, or that he even existed. Just people making references to other people's references. It's all connected, man. Fred Best is Jack the Ripper. Okay, you're hurting my hand. Can you let go, please? All right. Ah, Jesus. Okay, uh, bud, so I'm just going to grab that hat real quick. It's mine anyway. You can't have it. It's keeping Fred away from my thoughts. Fred's not real, Nash. I knew it! No, that's not... Okay. You, You good, bud? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. <clears throat> I'm okay. Okay. <clears throat> Take it easy. All right, just mm-hmm. do that. I got it for a second. <clears throat> now, things quiet down after the double event for just a little bit. Then on the 16th of October, 1888, a man slash vigilante, head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, <gasps> say that really fast in times, George Lusk gets a little letter in the mail. No. No, not Fred. Okay. He's not okay. It's not exactly. It's not Fred, right? Come, come your tits. George's letter, nicknamed "From Hell," which is the header, has totally different handwriting than that of Saucy Jack or the Dear Boss letters, leading many to believe that it's genuine. The letter reads: "From Hell, Mister Lusk, Sir, I send you half a kidney I took for one woman, preserved it for together piece I fried ate it. It was very nice." I may send you bloody knife that took only out for water while longer signed. Catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. He gets both. Now, he did, in fact, include half a kidney to George. And guess what? What? Catherine Edo's kidney was, in fact, missing. You may have noticed that this letter is not signed Jack the Ripper, which, combined with the kidney reference, the fact of which was not included in the early newspaper coverage at the time of Catherine's murder, led many to believe that it may really be from the killer. But not our boy George, though. He thinks it's a hoax by some medical students. Jesus Christ, what is the sense of humor back then? Again, what is what is wrong with you, Victorian Britain? Are you guys fine? Like, stop writing fake letters from murderers? It's weird. In their defense, their toilets are exploding. Oh, that's fair. So he doesn't turn it into the police until his friends are like, George, buddy, what are you doing? It's called evidence. Look it up here. Go give it to the cops. Come on. What are you, a piece of shit? Just as a quick little aside, the original From Hell letter is missing. The only thing we have is a photocopy of the original photograph of that letter. Just, hmm, more fun things to keep the mystery alive and well. By the way, the number of letters we've talked about in this podcast are three, and two of them probably fake. If Fred- No, Nash. Oh. I mean, one of them is real, or maybe none, but the amount of letters police received and recorded is roughly- Hang on, looking at this. Yep, 1,000. 1,000. So. I just. I... Um. 
It's quiet for a little while between the From Hell letter and the next thing. Before we get into that, though, let's randomly meet Mary Jane Kelly. Mary Jane Kelly offers a lot less traceable life than the other women we've met to this point. She's born in 1863, maybe in Ireland, maybe in Wales, maybe neither of those places. She tells acquaintances and friends a variety about her background, some of which contradicts other stories. For the most part, she claims to have come from well-to-do people and that she moved from Limerick, Ireland to Wales as a child. She says she's got a relative in the London Theatre and a brother in the Scotsguard, and that she's one of nine children. She told her sort of boyfriend, Joseph Barrett, that her father was an iron worker, but that really doesn't match with her being from a well-to-do family. For the most part, people who know her say she's bright and a good artist. According to the folks at her inquest, it was obvious she was from at least a middle-class family, but she apparently had no contact with them, though she maintained that there was at least one sister with whom she was close. She also claimed to have a child while she was married. If she was married and or slash had a child, no record actually survives. It's far more likely that she's a mistress, and she falls pregnant to a man with another family he's not willing to leave. If Mary Jane's family was as well-to-do as she claims, it was this perhaps that led her to starting a new life under an assumed name. She would have likely delivered the baby in a fallen women's home or an insane asylum, and this is true, which was the choice of higher-class families who thought of sexual misconduct as a mental illness. Jesus Christ, Victorian Britain. It gets better. Mary Jane is one of the only canonical victims of Jack the Ripper to have been strictly a prostitute. What now? Yep. Oh, are you not gonna... Fun facts. There's no medical facts this episode. You made me do a super fucked up on this. This is bullshit, dude. What the fuck, man? Anyway, the others may or may not have engaged in sex work for money. At the time, especially in Whitechapel, sex work would have been extremely destigmatized given the conditions of life there. Still, none of them were ever booked for prostitution by the London police or known to friends and family as specifically a prostitute, though many of them were called that after their murders. But most of them were simply, quote, tramping, which today might mean something specific, but in Victorian Britain included a variety of illegal or just lower class activities like selling wares on the street or doing odd jobs for DOS money. So why would the police... An excellent question, my dear Watson. And to continue the... Wait, fun- what? <laughs> And to continue the fun... Do I, the, do I look like a Watson? Yes. Oh. And to continue the fun, the police were deliberately, specifically barred against assuming unhoused women were prostitutes. Here's the police commissioner in 1887. The police are not justified in calling any woman a common prostitute unless she so describes herself or has been convicted as such. Since murder victims are incapable of calling themselves anything, and since three out of the five were never convicted of prostitution or arrested for it, it's sort of weird that the police wrote down exactly that, right? It's almost like the police didn't care at all, which would be like, so weird. Just like, (laughs) so weird. Uh. The police making baseline assumptions that Jack was targeting prostitutes and killing them while they were working may be one reason that this case never gets solved. That and, in fairness, all of the other stuff. But also that. Jeez Louise. Back to Mary Jane. Am I right, y'all? Yeah. (laughs) It's a dead woman. Mary Jane is a prostitute for the rich part of London in London's West End. One day, a client offers to take her to Paris and she agrees because in her line of work in the rich part of London, uh, not so weird. Instead of a pretty woman storyline, though, Mary Jane finds herself sold into the sex trade and is trafficked, working in a brothel in Paris under the eye of some not very bueno gente. Nevertheless, Mary Jane is smart and crafty, and she gets herself back to London in a fortnight. Damn, lady. Get it. 
but she can't go back to her old gigs and neighborhood for safety reasons. So she heads to the other place that she can continue to work, and that's Whitechapel. Back in the area, she begins to rely on drink to mourn her old and probably pretty sick life. She meets Joseph Barrett and the two move in together. They live harmoniously for a time until they quarrel in early November 1888 about Mary letting other prostitutes stay the night when they don't have Dawes money. On the 9th of November 1888, a man called Thomas Boyer is going through Whitechapel, collecting rent for his landlord employer. Oh, mm. great. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. What a fucking scab. Mm-hmm. Mary owes 29 shillings, and Thomas is about to kick the door down when instead he just peeks through the window and sees Mary Jane's extremely mutilated corpse through the window. M- Mary? Mary, you okay? You okay? Say something if you're okay. (laughs) I don't think she's okay. Joseph Barrett is called in by the coroner to ID her, and he is only able to do that by her eyes and one ear, according to records. Damn, homie was like really paying attention to her. Joseph was sick. I mean, you never had ear sex? Like, nothing else of her face or torso are left. We'll spare you the rest of the details on this, but there are photographs of her body in a quick Google search if you're that curious. The total mutilation of her body took roughly two hours, according to the coroner, which is the first and only time Jack takes longer than a few minutes. Since this killing happens inside a private room, that's likely the reason. Black death, polio, spontaneous combustion. Dying comes and after death comes decomposition. It may seem sad and also gross, but here you are and here's your host, not an actual doctor, but it's medical, medical, medical facts with Dr. Don't worry, this one isn't about Mary Jane. It's about serial killers in general. Hey, look. Took three seasons. We finally did them. We use Jack as a starting point to talk about serial killer history and patterns. Not just historians slash comedians. Hey, that's us. Hey. That do this. The FBI does it too. We're the FBI. Even though, oh my God, the federal booty inspectors. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Even though serial killers existed before 1888, Jack is how the public became obsessed with them. Serial killer is a definition that has changed over the years. It had to be separated from mass killings that happen in one event. Thank you, modernity. There is a bunch of myths that surround who serial killers are and that they are social outcasts, that there are white males, that they only kill interstate areas, that they must kill and they want to be stopped. Those are counterpointed by, you know, do you hear about this? Facts. Sexual motivation and or frustration is often the component to serial killing, but not always. Escalation in violence or risk-taking is also often a component. If Jack is indeed one person and thereby a serial murderer, we see that final piece in The Murder of Mary Jane. Picante. The following day, the 10th of November, 1888, the Home Office issues a plea to the whole community that they will pardon anyone with any information leading to the identification of Jack the Ripper, Except to the murderer himself. Probably smart. But things go suspiciously quiet for Jack after this. Over a month goes by before another death in Whitechapel. This time the strangling of a girl called Rose Milet. And then the next mysterious death does not occur until 1889. That's in July. When Alice McKenzie is found with her skirts thrown up and her torso mutilated. And the press frenzy begins anew with fears that Jack has returned. But then... Nothing, until September 10th, 1889, when a mysterious cut-up torso of a woman appears on Pynchon Street. 
just her torso. And after that, no other deaths are connected, even tentatively, with Jack. So who was he and what happened to him? There are no fewer than 100 suspects, ranging from people who actually might have done it, all the way up to Prince Albert of Windsor. In the 19th century, during the investigations, the police interview 300 suspects and detain roughly 80 of them, but no charges are ever made, and the assumptions are that it was one murderer working alone. But in modernity, and even bit in the 19th century, some have speculated there were multiple murderers, some copycats egged on by the panicked newspapers, or just... Just dudes killing ladies at the right place, right time. Thomas Arnold, the police superintendent, even remarked that he didn't believe Mary Jane Kelly was a Ripper victim. That sort of makes sense, given the violence of her murder and the fact that she'd already escaped the sex trade in Paris. And a bit after the crimes in 1910, the police assistant surgeon reported that he believed that only three of the murders were committed by the same man, and that the rest were circumstance or copycats. And so Jack, whoever he was, if he was any one person at all, will remain a mystery, partially because there's little evidence left, and partially because Victorian Britain was a perfect ecosystem in which violent crimes could be committed against women, specifically those who violated the social class and expectations of womanhood at the time. There are a few suspects that are more likely than others. One of them was a man called Montague John Druitt. Why guy three names? I fucking knew it. He's a lawyer in training in the Ripper times. But the only very compelling evidence against him for being the Ripper is that he gets dismissed from barrister school and commits suicide by jumping into the Thames very, very soon after Mary Jane Kelly is killed. That's not evidence. Correct. One of the investigators also claims that Druitt's own family were suspicious that Druitt was the Ripper and that he had, and this is true, sex problems. Don't know what those are, but he had 99 problems. All of them were sex. All of them were his pajimbas. But none of that has any actual evidence attached. It's all just hearsay. A Polish immigrant called Aaron Kazminski, who emigrates to London sometime in the 1880s, is another popular suspect. Kazminski's surname appears in the memo from one of the investigators on the case. He's Jewish for a start, so the police are probably like, well, he's guilty, boys, put him away. But in addition to that, he is also a paranoid schizophrenic and a hairdresser. So he's to put things in... Victorian British cop logic, uh, good with sharp things, and he hears voices that make him kill women and go stabby stabby. The kicker for Kosminski is that he's committed to an insane asylum in 1891 for threatening his sister with a sharp object, and he's never released back into the population. However, in the asylum records, he's never described as violent or murderous, and he apparently only speaks Yiddish, so he may have never written letters or graffiti, and may or may not have been able to communicate in English to his victims. So so maybe it's one of those guys, maybe it's both of them, and some other guys. Maybe Fred Best never existed, or maybe he was the Ripper all along. Or maybe the dinosaurs did it. Or maybe, on that note, that's the episode. Hello, Skeleton Army. Looks like we managed to finish up another season. Look at that. We made all 13 episodes this time around, so just like... Good for us. <laughs> Go us. Yeah. Well, after over a year of reaching your ears, and a lot of episodes... Our brains have turned to mush. We say that as a joke pretty often, uh, but they genuinely have. Like, it's fine. It's fine, but... It, it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. fine. Uh, it's not it's fine. It's not fine. Who knew that writing weekly episodes on the many horrors of history and how they helped shape our present time, with hours of research behind every single episode, then trying to add jokes like none of it affects your psyche, <laughs> could mess you up. Look, we love doing this show, and we have big plans for it coming up. But when those plans will come to fruition, only Jack the Ripper knows. So if at any point you're like, ¿Dónde está Death and Friends? ¿Está aquí? ¿Está aquí? We're working on season four. 
But more importantly, we're working on getting new episodes to you more often. And also, we're working on not liquefying your insides. That is what cheese and pro wrestling is for. In the meantime, for our patrons, thank you for supporting us. We're going to show you more love at all levels. And about these last two episodes, we we fully recognize that these were much longer and heavier than previous episodes. That being said, thanks for sticking with us as we try to traverse these murky waters. And uh, we'll see you soon. So a special thanks to you, our favorite listener. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rate and review would also be mandatory. Jack the Ripper's behind you. Yes. In fact, very mandatory, especially between this break. So don't be a butt. Great review. Tell your friends. Listen to the backlog. Hey, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Gorilla Jokes. That's G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A Jokes. And I'm at It's Nash Flynn. And of course, follow the podcast at Death and Friends Podcast. Want to become an official member of the Skeleton Army? Join us on Patreon. We use it to cover our sound guy's medical bills. In order to properly write medical facts, we expose Dom to all the illnesses and ways to die we talk about on the show. Instead of killing him... He's just playing the piano in real time at the moment. It's actually really nice. I really like this dude. Yeah. Speaking of Patreon, let's thank our listeners at the Brendan Fraser level. You guys just kept it real. You hung out with us this whole time and couldn't have done it without you. We genuinely mean that. So if you want to join, check it out at patreon.com slash deathandfriends. Also, we've got a website now. That's deathandfriends.org. That's dot O-R-G because we are committed to making the internet worse. Alrighty. Well, looks like that's it. So, considering these last two episodes, I think this last piece kind of matters a lot. Death is tricky to talk about. So please remember, you are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. And this time around, more importantly, thanks for being our friend. Allora, che cosa fai stasera, dolcezza? And there's the wink. Move aside, MySpace Tom. <laughs> there's a new number one for your top eight, and it's me. God, you're sold. <laughs> Until next time, Skeleton Army, stay spooky. Love you. Love you. This has been a Knavery Inc. podcast. Go to knaveryinc.com for more details. Executive produced by Jacob Duffy Halbleib. Audio designed by Dominic Guanzon. Themes and transitions by Amy Doe. The fuck is a knave? Remember this is a comedy podcast? Don't use it in your research papers. He sounds the alarm running to a watchman and shouting, We have different audio tracks. I can cough while you're talking. It's still rude. <laughs> he sends the alarm running to a watchman and shouts, God damn it, stop coughing. He sends the Death? Publishes a piece on October. Why does that say of, Nash? Why does that I don't say know. of? Whoever wrote this, just a dumb bitch. Fucking dummies. Uh, you fucking morons. JK Nash, do a great job. Death? Uh, Dom, can I get some, like, real aggressive sex right here? Jesus Christ. I just want I just want the sounds of two hams slapping and moaning. <laughs> the sexual tension between 19th century Aww. journalists and just putting whatever they want in Ooh. print. It's very hard. Hi. It's hi. Hi. It's hi. Fuck. <laughs> Death? Okay, found it. Death. They stumble upon a plon. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. They stumble upon. Straight up, dude. Go fuck yourself. They stumble upon it. You know.
Jump on it, ride it, my plony. Uh, right, uh, doing this podcast with you is incredibly humbling. Death? Uh, uh, local white woman offends everyone. I mean real work. <laughs> Not just sitting on my ass playing DVDs for the kids. Oh, never mind. <laughs> All right. Now where's my Salisbury steak? Death? Black death, polio. Spontaneous concoction. Death? I can give you a number for a different lawyer. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> oh my god, okay. <laughs> Alright, that sentence is too funny for me. Death? A serial murderer, we see that final piece in The Murder of Mary Jane. Picante. No. No picante. No picante. Jesus. <laughs>